0: Welcome back to The Urban Monk. I'm happy to be in studio with a real person, hanging out, uh, talking about politics, local politics, how you could get involved, and also, you know, what is needed to get involved in politics and actually make change. Uh, with me in studio is the former mayor of Garden Grove, which is right down the street from us, Bao Wen, who has just uh, stepped down uh, in December and is not, in the political arena now so we could sit down and kind (laughs) of take stock of what happened, what went right, what went wrong, and talk about how the younger generation could get involved, so hey, welcome. Thank you, thanks Pedrams, yeah. it's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here. It's uh, You know, it, what's funny is when, the first time you were here visiting, uh, you saw the Tibetan mandala behind you and you are like, this thing is not facing the right direction. <laughs> I'm like,
1: how do you know about that? And so you did Tibetan studies. That's uh, right, in Colorado at Naropan University, after UC Irvine. You, yeah. So what, what an interesting place to go.
0: Um, Beautiful I, it's too. all
1: it's all over that town. If you've ever been to Boulder, like obviously if you've ever been to Boulder, it's it's
0: all over. It's like this university of right. Tibetan Buddhist studies. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. So, you became mayor of a pretty large city. How many people in Garden Grove? It's about
1: 180,000 people. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And so, what drove you to do it first and foremost? Well, I wanted to make sure that we have a government that serves people. And at that time, the mayor before me had uh, this big scandal. uh, And I I didn't think it was okay because my motivation to go into politics is really from where I come from. You know, politics is what brought me to this country. I wasn't born in the United States. I was born in a UN refugee camp, uh, in a Doctors Without Borders clinic, had no citizenship to any country whatsoever. And what caused my parents to risk everything, become refugees, is because of bad government. So I wanted to see that in America we have good government. So that's what motivated me to run.
0: Wow, and so you got someone that set the example of bad government right ahead of you, and then you get this righteous indignation. You say, damn it, I'm gonna do this?
1: Yeah, because no one wanted to challenge him. He had been in office for 22 years, and people were so afraid of him. He was very entrenched. He was an institution within himself.
0: Wow, and so what is, okay, so how old were you at this time?
1: I was uh, 34.
0: Okay, you're a 34-year-old adult, but still <laughs> on the kid's side of adult, right? Like, that's, that's still pretty young, and so you're going up against this guy who's been running Gotham City kind of thing, right? <laughs> right. And so what do, you, what do you do? Like, how do you go about saying, okay, I want to be mayor? Like, do you have to go start raising money? Like, You I, do,
1: you do. You know, it's funny. Initially, I wanted a four-year term, rather than a two year mayor term. So I opened up a committee and started raising money for city council and I spoke with folks and it was really hard to raise money. And the existing politicians in my party were not supportive and and no one really supported me. They said, no, stay on the school board. You know, that's, that's where you should be. And I was like, okay. Play small. Yeah, I was like, all right, all right. So I closed my committee I went to Asia, went to Vietnam, went to Angkor Wat and I came back home and I said you know what I'm not gonna (laughs) I'm just gonna run for mayor and it it shocked people and I had to strategize on when and how to get in and on the ballot because you know politics is, is very much you know identity politics too so I I got in and I made sure that I was the only real opponent to this guy. And I worked hard, built the relationships, raised money, hustled. Because when I remember getting attacked during the campaign. And I had to pick up the phone and, and call my friends and say, hey, can you give me a thousand bucks? I need to respond to this. And I literally ran around collecting checks and then you know, sent it to my treasurer and then helped design the piece and push it out.
0: And fought your way up. And then what, like, so did you win by, uh, what kind of margin did you win by? Was it a tight race?
1: I won by 15 votes. Come on. I did. In a city of
0: 180,000? Yeah. Oh, that's great.
1: And there, there was a recount. So I won twice.
0: <laughs> nice. Yeah. So someone who was, okay, so you were on the school board. So you this wasn't your first step into politics, right. but you had just kind of gotten into politics. Right.
1: So I started as a community organizer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was inspired by uh, Barack Obama and, and his story. And, and when he was running in 2008, Sarah Palin said, what is a community organizer anyway? So I said, hey, well, I'll look it up. And I found that there was a community organizing organization right here in Orange County uh, with the same roots or lineage uh, of Barack Obama and Saul Alinsky and of liberal progressive politics in Orange County and, and I got the job and I cut my teeth there, changed policy in Orange County, secured uh, a senior transportation program of about nearly half a million dollars for my city and I felt that I could do it. You know, it's it's possible when people come together and they want to see policy change, and it can happen.
0: It's funny, because this last election, there was this, you know, there's the big brown book. And so you're looking at it, and you know, I'm trying to be a good citizen, so I'm like reading up on stuff. And on half of them, I'm scratching my head saying, who the hell wrote this ballot thing anyways? Like, what is this? And who decided that this was going to be something that I have to vote on right now? And so someone did it.
1: Right. A person or a group of people yeah.
0: are involved in politics yeah. and they're doing it. Yeah, and so it's the same kind of energy, right? Right,
1: right. But that this a little bit different at a yeah. local level as yeah. opposed to a, a statewide yeah. ballot measure. That's uh, a lot of bigger, money. Bigger, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. How much money did it take to raise to like fight this fight? Out of curiosity, like people think it's so cost prohibitive.
1: I, uh, you know, for for my mayoral race, I personally raised about a hundred thousand dollars, but that. You know, that doesn't count you know, the folks that helped in what we call independent expenditures and is uncoordinated with the candidate. So folks did their own mailing and their own field work oh. while my campaign you know, focused on our strategy. So it, it's probably much more than that if you count all the other things that were done. All the energy that went into in it. In addition to, and, and money, yeah, no, in okay. addition to what I had to do.
0: So you have, uh, you become mayor, and you were mayor for four years? Two years. So you became, it's you became, a two years. Two, two years. Okay, mm-hmm. and so you go into this, and then at some point you drop this kind of bomb that you're openly gay, right? Right. In mm-hmm. a, a culture at least that's not supportive of that,
1: right? right. And so
0: what? What the hell was that like?
1: Yeah, you know, it was really exciting because I've never felt I've been closeted, you know. So uh, I've always been very openly myself. So when the U.S. ambassador to Vietnam was in town and he had a town hall with members of Congress. I, uh, he's openly gay, uh, he's married, got kids, Ted uh, and, Osius, and so I felt that since all of the media was gonna be there, you know, LA Times, Orange County Register, I Weekly, and all the Vietnamese ethnic media, print, radio, television. So I said, this is a good time to let everybody know. You know? Wow, <laughs> As, you came
0: out at a press conference.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, you know, I asked a question, I, I thanked, you know, uh, Ambassador Osius for his work uh, and, and really, you know, representing uh, LGBT community folks, too, in leadership. Mm-hmm.
0: How hard was it at that point? Did you have pushback from your Vietnamese community, from any community, like, was, did, it, did it change your relationship with people?
1: Uh, no. Uh, people who know me, you know, know. Uh, it's, I think coming out is in, in really interesting because, uh, you know, I, I look at it intellectually and think, well, what am I coming out of? <laughs> and if I'm coming out of something, then what am I going into? So if I'm going into something, then shouldn't there be more coming out? So coming out is like a constant the thing. Process. It's, it's like you're always coming out. I mean, <laughs> when are you really truly yourself, right? <laughs> or are truly you? You know, It's kind of hard to tell. There's a the Buddhist training right there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it, it was challenging mm-hmm. because there were, there were some folks, I had already known actually, that there were folks out there who didn't like me being uh, uh, an elected official and who I am. So they went around and told folks that, hey, you know Bao's gay. Mm. And that's supposed to hurt me somehow. Mm. And it got back to me, and I said, "So what?" Hmm. You know, and and yeah. and you know. Later on, I found out that some folks felt that uh, in in the Vietnamese community that it, it was too much, uh, that they had to have an emergency meeting. I don't know what came about. They had an emergency and, yeah, meeting. Yeah, over so you funny. Being gay. Yeah, right? <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? <laughs> so I thought it was really funny, um, but if you look at how the community has progressed. Uh, particularly on the issue of uh, LGBT equality. Uh, just a couple, I, don't, I think a, a couple years before that, uh, the LGBT folks who were marching in the Vietnamese New Year Parade had been barred from marching in the parade, uh, I forget, just a couple few years ago. And when I was on a school board, I led the protest from the school board and we had boycotted the parade because they barred LGBT folks from marching in there. And the year after that, they were able to be in the parade again, which is really important. So, you know, changes change can happen pretty rapidly, but I think what's really important is the human-to-human connection, so people know what, what is a gay person. <laughs> I mean, you're interacting with one or more, probably every day, you know? Right. So right. <laughs> they're human <Surprise>. beings. <laughs> yeah, surprise. <laughs> they're amongst us, you know, and they're in our families. And I think that's really important mm-hmm. when, we, when we take uh, the understanding of what are our family values and, and uh, not let certain people have a monopoly over defining what family values are. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we can progress. In that way, and let people understand that, you know, everybody deserves respect.
0: So you were the, under the umbrella of Barack Obama's progressive administration while all this was kind of happening, and the climate has changed somewhat. The tone has changed, uh, and things have really kind of taken a very interesting turn politically. Uh, what's your fear for LGBT uh, people now coming into politics and all of it? I mean, there's just there's so
1: much. You know, I think that there's always work that needs to be done uh, on a policy level. And right now, because because of uh, the new or different uh, environment that we're in politically uh, under our new president, it's important that everybody gets involved and pushes. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you know, the strange thing is sometimes it's these kinds of events that Mm -hmm. galvanize and unite people. Mm. And we can make a lot of gains as well. Mm. Uh, so I, I know it's, it's quite depressing uh, to see that, hey, we, we didn't have our choice, but we have each other. Mm. And f- now it's clearer that we have each other more than ever.
0: What's funny is you look at some of the membership and the dues uh, uh, and just money raised by say like the ACLU and a bunch Mm -hmm. of these different things. There is so much money going into civil liberties now. Uh, There's so much money being kind of earmarked for people to protect. These rights, these liberties, right? And so it's funny. The word liberty is something that everyone fights over, you know. And like so, so right, right. The right thinks that they they're the patriots, right? And the left thinks that they're they obviously the patriots. And so these all these words that the founding fathers had, everyone's fighting over saying who's the right thing. And somewhere in the middle is probably you know reality, right? And and so politics is so damn polarizing how effective is it like for me i just want to see trees in the future i want to see clean oceans you know I, I want to protect civil liberties there's a lot of things you know personally that you know i would want for my children's children and the future of the planet right. um, a lot of people in my generation and the generation like of millennials behind me have kind of given up on politics how much hope is there how ugly was it
1: you know I don't, first of all first of all i don't blame Folks, for giving up on politics, you know it's it's uh, it's intimidating, and and a lot of times we don't feel that we can make an impact. But I can say that we can make an impact, a huge impact. I was organizing senior citizens in Garden Grove uh, when I was a community organizer. It was a group of just about five of us, and we created a huge policy change. So I think it's definitely possible. And I mm-hmm. think start local. You know, people say all politics are local, and there's a lot of truth in that. Mm. You, know, you gotta build the relationships. You know, one of the key principles I learned from being a PICO community organizer is that power is in the relationship. So we have that already, but how do we deepen that? And a lot of that is listening and identifying what our values are and how do we translate that to what we desire in policy, mm-hmm. which is, you know, in the public sphere. So.
0: But it's so out of reach, right? Like you have the politicians over there and you have the civilians over here. And people just have it like you crossed that over. You went into the school board, you did the you did the community stuff. Then you Uh went to the school board and you're like you know, then you you go off on your walkabout and you're just like screw it, I'm just gonna be the mayor, right? And so you you took that leap of faith, but a lot of people don't even see that they could get involved on, on on that level. So if I'm if I'm just like, you know, in my hometown going, yo, I don't like I don't like something I see what are my first few steps to really get things moving?
1: Well, talk to your family first. You know, I, I think having your family support is really key. I think growing up in, in, in a big family helped train me to be engaged in the community, and then be engaged politically. I think being involved in your local PTA, uh, your your local service organizations, that's all very important. Hmm. And. I think at some point, you'll see that you can impact policy by running for office, whether you win or not, mm. you know, so do it, and run. And it's a test, it's a test, it's a challenge, you know, and, and you really grow from it.
0: How much exposure do you get on that poll? like while you're campaigning and canvassing? Like, do people show up? Is there you know, some sort of radio broadcast? Like, how, how are you getting your voice heard because um, we're, gonna, I guess we're going to talk about money in a minute. Yeah, I was just going to say <laughs> right. Bryce, that's money. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's money. It's money. Uh, quite frankly, it's money. Mm. And e- even a grassroots effort, it, it involves a lot of money.
0: So you got to go to friends and family, yeah, those sympathetic those people, first say, people you go to, friends and family. Yeah, and then you basically say, open up your checkbook. I want to do this. Mm-hmm. And there's obviously no return on investment other than someone who has, you know, kind of uh shared ethos right
1: well that's your love money so even if they don't have you know shared uh political uh and shared politics they 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 would donate and give and and that love money is like a one-time deal it's kind of like a good luck thing then you have that and then you put on events and you build relationships with other political interests uh, to uh, accomplish you know your fundraising goals
0: so, so walk me through this, just because it's so foreign to me. like, sure.
1: all right, I want to go be the mayor of
0: my town because I'm a lunatic and I don't actually want that. Um, but if I want to be the mayor-
1: only ma- lunatics run for mayor. <laughs> no, Thanks, I, got, I, got, I, got too, I got too much shit going on. I got too much shit going on.
0: Um, so uh, let's assume Pedro wants to run for mayor. And then I go, okay, I'm gonna do fundraiser dinner, and then who do I, like, I, I, oh, you're I, actually, really, I, want, I want to connect this, right?
1: You can do this, because you're on the phone a lot, and a lot of it's being on the phone. And mm-hmm. you ask people on the phone to make a commitment.
0: You say, what, you know what, I'm, I'm going to be running for ca- for uh, this this position. Mm-hmm. Um, $1,000, please. <laughs> yeah. Right, I, I Really, I want to yeah. set up a roadmap for people who want to do this. Yes,
1: yes. Yeah? Yeah, for your family and friends. You know, I mean, you, you would have to identify what their capacity is to give to you as mm-hmm. well because you want to ask for a certain amount. Right, reasonable you know, or, ask. Exactly. <laughs> you don't want to... You don't get too crazy, or, or even you know ask for a, a low amount. You want to ask for the proper amount, and you got to make all those calls.
0: Where does the money end up going? TV, print, radio. TV,
1: print, radio, uh, online, uh, field, uh, software, uh, candidate statements, all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Transportation, uh, snacks, volunteers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, office space.
0: So it'll, like, a for you at, at this level, it cost X amount, when you say a couple hundred grand, or like whatever it is. Yeah. And, you know, it cost this much money, yeah. and then you get in there. And you, obviously, you you know, the way democracy works is then you don't, Technically, you don't owe any of these favors back right you're supposed to then go do your job right <laughs> right but right, is right. that is that actually how right. Washington works right I, I'm really trying to understand I don't know I, you, you know to keep I, it clean I, I've, right. I've only
1: I've only been an intern uh, for for a White House initiative when I was in college so mm-hmm. how Washington works uh, it's it. it's pretty yeah <laughs> so on the local level on the local level uh-huh You do it,
0: you have a fair shot, you have a voice, and the more media exposure you get, the more
1: people get to know about you, and then they vote. It's not just media exposure. It's building the relationships with uh, key individuals uh, and organizations, and being out there having face-to-face conversations with real voters. Mm -hmm. That's really important. So to get the endorsement of, say, like the head of the
0: school district Mm -hmm. means something. carries weight
1: the teacher's union that carries a lot of weight, mm-hmm. or the, the uh, classified employees. And so, if you, so
0: basically you go around shaking hands, making friends, getting endorsements to build your base and build your... Company.
1: Right. So if you want to get endorsements from certain organizations, you have to fill out questionnaires. So that lets the organization know your policy position mm-hmm. on their particular interests. Mm-hmm.
0: Got it. Yeah and then they look at that and say, yes or no, we like this guy or not, right? Right, and, and, and
1: they might have their own consultant to analyze you know, the political environment mm-hmm. and see whether you are viable or not, mm-hmm. and then you know, they'll make that determination. Mm-hmm. How competitive is it? I mean, are
0: there lots of like really good, high-quality people running for most of the positions out there in like ma- major cities, or is it, like, who's, who's there, Like who, who are you canvassing
1: with? <laughs> You know, it, I, I don't think it, it's that competitive actually. I think we really need to develop more candidates to have a, a democracy that is reflective of our communities. Hmm. So it, it takes somebody that really wants to go out there and serve hmm. and have an understanding of the community that's really diverse because you're in a unique position as a candidate as well because you're going to everybody people are telling you what they care about mm. mm-hmm. and you have this bird's eye perspective that most people just don't so i i, I think uh you just got to have that drive
0: what did you try to do and what happened and what got stonewalled, what would you have liked to have happened in your two years? As mayor? As mayor.
1: Well, I accomplished a lot as mayor in my two years. Uh, I led led (laughs) the transition. I led the transition in city leadership, uh, executive level leadership, the city manager. So I I led the transition with hiring the interim city manager and then also uh, setting the criteria and leading the search and the recruitment and the hiring of the permanent city manager who's there So how does,
0: how does that affect me as a citizen in the city?
1: It does because that's like the CEO
0: of a city. City manager is a CEO of a city. That's right. And so what does a city manager do? The Basically city, runs all the operations of the city? That's right. Or that's calls right. the shots really, he's not the COO, right?
1: Well, the C, well, the CEO, or the, let's call him the city manager. Okay. <laughs> him, yeah, because it's, 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 it's different mm-hmm. than, than a business or private entity. So, the, the city manager is in charge of implementing the policies of the city council. So, okay. and that means making sure that the budget is, uh, has oversight as well, and all the operations, and also leading a team of uh, executive um, leaders. So city directors of public works, uh, community services, the police chief, the fire chief, etc.
0: So you got to orchestrate all that, make sure everyone does their jobs, follow the will of the people through the city council, and then go and execute and actually make make sure the city runs. That's right. So that's you brought a city man. You
1: transitioned a new city manager in. That's right. Cool. What else? So I led that transition very smoothly. Also held the city accountable uh, for the. Uh, the issues that, that were there from the previous mayor. Okay, well. so the thing that you were pissed
0: about, mm-hmm. you came in and started to clean up and fix. That's right. And you feel good about the
1: changes you were able to make. I do, because there are lasting changes. Great. And you know, we restored the public confidence in the city, which is really important. Great. So in addition to that, I also invited His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, to our city. And he celebrated uh, his birthday f- uh, with our city as well. And we declared Garden Grove a city of compassion. And I presented him the key to the city and he gave us a little talk. It was very inspiring. And that sets the tone for what we do in the city to say that we're a city of compassion. Mm. And we're such a diverse city. We have uh, diversity not just ethnically, racially, but also religiously, you know, age, etc. cetera. So it's it's great to say that compassion is the value for our city. So you have one hundred eighty thousand people. How does it how does it break down
0: in terms of basic like just general ethnic it's, lines? It's
1: about it's about a third Asian American, a third Latino, and a third Caucasian. Uh, we also have the Christ Cathedral uh, in our city, which is uh, I believe it's the largest Roman Catholic uh, facility outside of the Vatican in Garden Grove. We also really? have. Really. Yeah, we also have uh, the largest mosque in the region, in our city as well. So it an Islamic center of uh, Orange County, Islamic Society of Orange County there. And, and all kinds like Buddhist temples and so many different religious faiths. So we have the interfaith uh, council that's very active uh, in our city. And so many things going on. Uh, that is, it's important to say that we're here to serve everybody, and you know, with what's going on nationally, uh, with folks being scapegoated or being targeted, it's important for us to say that we stand together and mm-hmm. that we're a model for that, mm-hmm. and we're not afraid. And a city can do that. Cities have been doing that right. recently,
0: right? And um, uh, been taking stands, right? right and so that the kind of local governance versus state versus federal and all that's an interesting conversation that's now really becoming emergent um, it's interesting like in the last kind of political climate mm-hmm. texas was like obama enemy number 1 right like every time obama had something it would be like we're exercising our state's rights you're, feder- you're you know you're crossing over this isn't a federal jurisdiction this is state and now that washington has switched now california is playing texas right and is doing the same same type of thing back to Trump's policies. And it's a real interesting look at American politics, you know, the union and, and actual, you know, where the rights fall. So, how much rights do cities have? Like, you know, if you want to say, like, oh, well, I want to do city stuff, but it's not big enough, you could actually make serious changes there in people's lives.
1: Absolutely. Oftentimes, you know, your city government, your local municipality, your school board, your water board has a greater direct impact on your life mm. than uh, national government, mm. federal government. Because you see the impact. Your, your pothole is gonna get filled or not. Mm-hmm. That's a city issue, mm. right? Your, your school is gonna be safe or not. Your kids are gonna have a, a good education or not. That's a local, local, level. local issue.
0: More people going into this would be awesome. Um, the, one of the challenges is people coming out of college have debt, right? People, you know, you get yeah. out of college, you're like, damn, I gotta pay all this stuff back, and so it's not a lucrative career, no, right? it's not, it's <laughs> not, <laughs> right? so, it's not at all. So you go hustle up all this money that right. goes towards getting you into a position that uh-huh. doesn't really give you, and so there's obviously a lot of, you know, Bad apples being created, like you know, corruption in politics, wherever that is. It's like everywhere at all levels. At all levels, yeah. yeah. From from city, I mean, from home, homeowners associations, I see it in just like the, the the like these power plays in my homeowners association. We're like, really, dude, you're playing that out here? Like, chill out, right? I'm sure all the way up to the White House, right, it, and everything in between people are people, right? So how do we get more people involved, right? I mean, there's enlightened Mm -hmm. self-interest, right? Like, I got a family to feed, Mm -hmm. and so either I have to wait till I'm independently wealthy to do
1: this, or I have to take a real pay hit to do it. Yeah, you do. You do take a real pay hit to do it, or you're independently wealthy. And, you know, I I encourage people to, to do it for the right reasons, for service. Sure. And, you know, it's a sacrifice. It's a real sacrifice. I I thank people for serving. Is that
0: why you think less millennials are getting into this? Because you you get out, you gotta make a life for yourself, you gotta build, and so it's, you know, you're not at that phase in life, so it's usually like older men and women who've run a few miles?
1: Right, no, I I think so. I I think we don't have access, you know, as younger people, uh, to the means. And also, uh, we have our own, you know, obligations, you know, whether it's student loans, right. or or rent, rent. Yeah. You know, we we have it, you know, and we're we're in a different situation than than the previous generation too on how the economy has impacted our generation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So. Absolutely. Well, and every generation can I guess say that, right? I mean, yeah. from the boomers on,
0: but sure. it's the climate's changed. But mm-hmm. you know, I know yeah. that there's a lot of kind of. People that don't represent the population in positions of power and things are being kind of shuffled around right now. Just now, uh, the federal court maintained a, the freeze on, tr- on on Trump's immigration ban, so now it's like you know the judiciary versus the executive. You know, mm-hmm. and so there's there's so much that's happening that affects people's lives that people feel powerless about. You step up and did something about it. You became an elected official. You became a mayor, and you decided, well, you know what, talk is cheap, and you did it. Um, I would really love to get more like-minded people, of, of anything, just, just people who are interested in a better world into the political system. Because to me, growing up, it was always relegated to like sociopaths and corrupt people. Like, we just, we didn't go there, right? Like, that's, yeah. that's my generation. I was like, I, what, politics is dirty, so I'm not gonna touch it. Except it runs my life, right? So what would your advice be to people trying to
1: make a difference, community activism first? Just do it. I mean, try it. You know, run run for PTA president or president of your homeowners association. You know, serve. And you know, make sure that your purpose for serving is clear and your intentions are clear and that you don't stray from that. That's what I'd like to see. I can't say that that is what's out there. Because right. it was really hard for me to be mayor. Because there are folks that didn't want to support things that were common sense just because they didn't like me. Mm. So,
0: because you, flipped, you have to deal with because that. Because you flipped the old bad guy because yeah, you're... exactly. Yeah. So there was entrenched oligarchy kind of energy in there.
1: So and you gotta deal with that. Mm.
0: I have a friend who uh, just stepped down as mayor of another town. And he said to me it, it, that anything beyond the level of mayor, you're pretty much 100% bought because all you're doing is running around taking care of your patrons and trying to like you know do favors back to get in. And he thought it was so ugly, he had to get out. Um, did you see any of that ugliness upstream? Like, because you you ran for office, you yeah. ran for so recently, you ran for
1: Congress. That's right.
0: What what the hell was that like?
1: <laughs> it was a lot of hard work. Uh, it was really exciting too, and it, it got people really excited for my candidacy, as well. It, it also helped me uh, raise issues that were important to our community. Uh, but yeah, the struggle of raising money is real, especially at a federal level.
0: You got to make a lot. You got to raise a lot more money, right, to play that game, right. Um, what are the dynamics of that? Like, are we just talking like bigger, bigger fundraisers, like more expensive seats at this thing, or is it a whole different ball game?
1: I think it's a whole different ball game. It's more, you know, who the players are in Washington, you know, in the Beltway, and, you know, who they want to support, how they determine viability. Uh, it's also something that is very much about identity politics. So the was, demographics, yeah. the demographics of the district that I ran for, uh, was predominantly Latino, and I made it in the primary. <laughs> barely made it into the general. And so I, I So I placed, you're on the ballot. I placed second in the primary. I was on the ballot for the general in November, and I, I barely made it in. And the the person who was the front runner uh, is a Latino. Person, uh, candidate, former state senator, and so there's there's a lot of that uh, identity politics going on. Mm-hmm. As well. How much
0: of it was the actual district voting versus because right, you're representing a district, right? But I mean, everyone's voting for right. Congress, right. So how, how does that how does that work?
1: Uh, people that live in the district that you're running for get to vote, you know, for in in, in that race that you're running for. So. You know, I'm not a Latino, uh, and you know it's it's hard for me to uh, raise enough money when there's someone so entrenched and established, uh, mm-hmm. who has the you know uh, Spanish surname, mm-hmm. and to let folks and voters let voters know uh, how we differ because mm-hmm. that requires so much money to send mail home and buy radio ads and newspaper and. And your name isn't stacked,
0: you know, in your yeah. favor, your fa- no. face isn't stacked, in your face no. just, yeah, got it. Um, so, and you could have waited, Like, so if you had like a more Vietnamese district come up down the line, possibly, would that makes sense? Like,
1: possibly, you know, I, I represent a different generation in the Vietnamese American community as well. I'm a liberal Democrat, mm-hmm. and a lot of folks in the older generation are more conservative, and they vote Republican. And when I ran for mayor, uh, folks attacked me and, and called me a commie. My opponent called me a commie. And that's... It still happens, huh? It still happens, but it's really that's insulting because I was born in a refugee camp because we couldn't Running live from the commies. Running for the commies. So <laughs> it's kind of right. like what people are saying about the refugees today. Right. You know? Mm. So not very cool.
0: It's funny, as we had a guest on the show talking about the history of marijuana and how it was called marijuana because in the 1920s, uh, there was the same type of galvanized um, nationalism happening and they needed an enemy, so they said it was the Mexican immigrants that were gonna come in and rape your wife and children and like take everything. So they took cannabis and they relabeled it marijuana to make it sound more Hispanic. And demonize it, and started a drug war just to shift and get the votes, and you know the power stru- structure that they had. And so we're in an interesting climate, but simultaneously, like okay, so we're like we're in California, and uh, you know Trump takes the election, and so now we have a conservative president. But then all of a sudden, marijuana has become legalized for recreational use in this state. Right. And so it's like this this kind of pendulum is opposite swinging for different issues all over the place. I know you've gotten involved in some marijuana politics or cannabis politics, right, let's call right. it. Uh, what, what's that like? Like what, what does that world look like?
1: You know, when I was mayor of Garden Grove, we had to address the issue of these dispensaries that were operating without a license <clears throat> in our city and we didn't have a regulatory structure for uh, these businesses. So I wanted our city to implement regulations to improve public safety, to make sure that you know it stays out of the hands of kids and and those who should not have access to it. So I, I was moving forward with that, and then you know things changed on the council and it got shut down. People mm-hmm. didn't want to move forward with that. Hmm.
0: And so what, they just locked it down and said, we don't want this
1: in our city? <coughs> they or? voted to stop the task force uh, that I was heading. And they said, we want to keep the ban, so. Yeah, no, no dispensaries in our town. No dispensaries, no cultivation, no anything.
0: We don't want to touch it. So, yeah. cities in these states that have voted, for, or let's just talk about California. Yeah. Yeah. So in California, a city can say, not in our, not in our house.
1: Right. Right.
0: Which means you could recreationally use marijuana, but you can't sell it because you don't have a permit to sell it.
1: Right. With Prop 64, it's decriminalized. Mm -hmm. So, there's that for people who consume it Mm -hmm. in their home. That's their right. Mm -hmm. And for folks who want to do business and sell medical marijuana or recreation in January 2018, if cities do not grant you the license, then you don't have the right to do that, and you would be operating illegally. Okay. So to me, that would create a black market, right. <clears throat> as it has, and we've seen that. And Which it makes, is, not <laughs> and is not taxable. And it's not taxable, and it you know, creates all kinds of troubles in the community, in the neighborhoods, you know, for the city. And it's a cat and mouse game with the cops and these uh, unlicensed operators. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think it's so important to regulate. because we we see how the regulation of alcohol has really uh, made it more difficult for minors to get their hands on that controlled substance. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important that we uh, have sensible policies uh, on medical cannabis and recreational cannabis.
0: Colorado has been at this a little longer. Um, mm-hmm. From what I've seen, the, the data is pretty solid on, you know, use in, in, in teens hasn't really gone up, like violent crime hasn't gone up, uh, there's money coming in, there's tax dollars that are actually starting to flow. I mean, you've been looking at this closer than I have. How, how, how rosy is it?
1: Well, I, I think, you know, we can learn a lot from other states that have done it before we did. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I think it's overall, I think that local governments should uh, regulate because you got to have some kinds of controls in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, you know, you're not really helping. You're you're not really addressing the issue. Mm-hmm. If you say, "Okay, I think it's evil. Uh, we should just have a full ban on it," then that's not being open to Uh, how policies in other cities or states have been successful. Mm -hmm. And also, (coughs) if you continue to study the data on those who use cannabis uh, medicinally or not, uh, we see that there is a drop in the usage of prescription drugs as well, especially opiates. Mm -hmm. And those are the drugs that have caused a lot of death in America a lot of ODs, Uh, we don't see that with cannabis. So I I think it's really important when we see that there are veterans out there who uh, use cannabis to treat their PTSD and and other issues. We see that there are uh, kids with seizures, uh, folks with uh, severe Parkinson's, uh, all, all sorts of ailments. So whether We want to say it's okay for us as an individual or one as an individual to use or consume. Uh, I don't think it's very American to tell other people that they shouldn't have access and safe access to what alleviates their pains and conditions, medical conditions.
0: Well, that's kind of the tip of the spear of this whole movement really was the medical benefits that really started to kind of outweigh the costs of whatever you know were perceived as as the challenges with this, and so recreational is kind of a different thing. But then we go back to liberties, right? Right. Like America, America has freedom and liberty, and it stands for certain mm-hmm. things. And if you're not bothering me, then you know maybe the government should stay off of this. Absolutely.
1: I mean, right. I think that's why I'm here in this country.
0: You know, so you, yeah. you mentioned that you grew up in a
1: refugee camp. I was born there. Yeah. What? Where was this camp? It's in Thailand. It was in Thailand. Yeah.
0: So, okay, give us a quick history. You get the the, the This is basically after South Vietnam falls. Right. Everyone's got to go. You got yeah. out right before. No, I'm, no, no.
1: So the first wave of refugees from uh, South Vietnam were those that were evacuated uh, in 1975. Uh, just. Daisy. Like hung on to the helicopters, kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Folks that the pictures we yeah. had relationships with the American effort, etc. And then the second wave were boat people, and we were boat people. Well, technically, I was a boat fetus because my mom was eight months pregnant with me in the womb wow. when they escaped in the middle of the night. Uh, how
0: long? How long was the yeah. new
1: regime in place? Five years, 1980. Okay, so yeah.
0: they're solidly under communist rule at this point. Yeah, And they said we gotta get the hell out. Right, right,
1: so. And, they,
0: it, it, and it's bad enough to put a pre, an eight-month pregnant woman on a boat.
1: Knowing that half the people who had escaped uh, by boat didn't make it. And we almost didn't make it, actually. Even We were hijacked by pirates multiple times on the way to Thailand. And when we saw land, we noticed that there were people on shore holding weapons and guns and knives. Bandits
0: or or like law?
1: Bandits, and not letting us land. So it was at that moment that the people on the boat, they they thought about breaking the boat apart and drowning uh, rather than being killed. And, uh, And they were really freaked out. They didn't have anything, they were tired, they were sick and starving and thirsty. And at that moment, while the sun was going down, these Buddhist monks who had a temple nearby, they saw what was going on, they came down and made a human chain out into the water and pulled our boat in and protected us and gave us refuge in their temple the first night. Come on. So. Wow,
0: and yeah. the bandits just like backed off?
1: Well, you know, Buddhist monks in Thailand are you know, highly revered.
0: So they're the untouchable. Yeah. So you get human chained by Buddhist monks, compassion onto the shore, you go into this thing for the first night, and then there's some sort
1: of through, through And in line. the morning, yeah, we were processed into the refugee camp. And then a month later, I was born.
0: Refugee camp is in Thailand? Yep. Um, established by the UN? Right. Okay, so you're born in a refugee camp. What, what At was a Doctors
1: like? Without Borders clinic. So my birth certificate is this small. It's handwritten in French, Medicine Sans Frontieres, and yeah.
0: How long were you there?
1: My family was there for four months. I was there for three months, outside of the womb. Right. <laughs> right,
0: and then at that point, you get transferred to?
1: We took a Pan Am flight to New York. We were processed there, and then we were settled in Nashville, Tennessee. Then when I was about four or so, we took a Greyhound out to California.
0: So it. You said that's you know, brothers yeah. or sisters? You said yeah, a big family? Yeah.
1: Two of my sisters were left behind uh, with relatives. In, In the, the old country, got it. And then they met up with us five years later. So I remember the day when they came over and meeting them for the first time. How'd but they get out? By boat as well. Same thing? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I don't think the boat people, that wave ended until maybe even the early 90s.
0: So it was just like a underground railroad of, of refugees kind of thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. Wow. Exactly, coyotes and all that. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. And so so you now were the the mayor of an American town. So it's like the ultimate story of like refugees and <laughs> race and, and, and you know, all the global problems kind of splashing on the beach of America and, and what that looks like. And so here you are giving back, trying to make this a better place and fighting corruption.
1: Well giving back and also not forgetting where I come from, uh, and seeing how Today's current events are directly related to uh, what brought me here, my family here, mm-hmm. and to really honor those sacrifices, mm-hmm. of not just my parents' sacrifices, but all those that have sacrificed their, their lives at times to make what America is today. And you know, I, I recognize that so many other folks have fought for the liberties that I have today, you know, and fact of the matter is, when the Vietnamese refugees were being considered for resettlement or taken in to United, the United States, uh, a lot of folks said we don't, we don't want them. Mm. They, there could be commies there. Our enemy lies mm. amongst those refugees, and I'm very grateful to President Carter as well for accepting more refugees at the time, even though in that climate in America, the Vietnamese refugees w- were were looked at um, in, in very negative light, and I believe it, it was worse than how we view Syrian refugees today. So it was important for folks like me or other Vietnamese Americans to share their stories and to voice their solidarity with other refugees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And These are people who have been victims of terrorism. Horrible, horrible crimes. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, it's a part of who we are as a country. You know, I, I don't see my parents boarding a boat and setting sail much different than what the English did to escape a tyrannical Mm.
0: And when you look at the founding fathers of this country, they fought and bled for liberty and <coughs> some really, really amazing things that um, still stand today. And, and, and this is where things get really cloudy because I, I've had a lot of conversations with people on the, the, ro- the right red side, right? Um, and I get it, man. I totally get it. I mean, their ancestors bled for the liberties and they are seeing the deterioration of, of what's great about this country. Um, but this, the political climate is demonizing people and creating enemies out of things that I think is really confusing the matters. Um, because you're, okay, so you're a liberal, yeah, right? yes, Talking about America and its liberties and, and what's so great about America. This doesn't sound any different than a, a conversation I had at a gun store two months ago with a guy with a big mustache. Right, so it's like we're not that far apart on this, right? We're not. We're not.
1: And I get I get that idea of, you know, wanting to protect the Second Amendment. I get that idea because people were afraid of tyranny, of you know, government going bad. Government was bad before. That's why they left. Exactly. So I I get it. I I get that's that's why that's in our constitution. Mm -hmm. But I think we have a different structure today and what gun, I guess, advocates are, are wanting is, is beyond the imagination of what our Founding Fathers have put into the Constitution. So, I, I, I mean, how much time does it take to, to uh, you know, make your, uh, your musket, you know, pack your gunpowder in, and you know, I don't think they had in mind that people should have rights to automatic assault rifles. I don't think that's what our founders had in mind. I think having checks to make sure that our government does not abuse its power is really important. Does that involve guns today? Or does it really involve being engaged politically and making sure that our representatives are representing us?
0: So here's here's my stance on this, is to me the last line is the guns, obviously, right? If all th- all else fails, you go and you become a militia and you fight for your rights. Um, and you try everything before that, okay. obviously. yeah, Obviously, right, you Should, defend yeah. your family. But if I'm going, if, if I got a guy with a semi-automatic or an automatic rifle coming in to take away my liberties and I have the equivalent of a musket, then that battlefield has now been really skewed and i'm at a dramatic disadvantage. So i get i get it. Like i get both sides of it, right? It's just like so if the government has tanks and bombs, i need at least this and that to defend myself and it's it's just it keeps escalating yeah. into something that gets really carried away. The government but has it,
1: nukes, so does that mean that everyone should have nukes if they wanted? Yeah. Well, i mean oh,
0: that's that's I the global sure. that's Hope the global city. Right but that's where that's also where non-proliferation comes in. Yeah. The fact that everyone has nukes means that we haven't been using nukes. So if you knew that Americans like you know you go good luck trying to invade America. It's got one of the largest standing armies in the world, right? A bunch of guys with guns that'll stand up and be like this is my land. And there's something really powerful about that. But I think, again, all of this has gotten really skewed and hatred and bitterness and all this stuff against, you know, like immigrants has come in, in a country of immigrants. I mean, right. unless you're a Chumash Indian, you're an import in the place we're sitting right now. I'm an import, I'm a refugee, as are you, right? And I don't care if you're 10 generations deep or however far that goes, you know, Irish, you still came from some country and you came away from something. So this country is built on immigration, and it's built on liberties, and building built on democracy. I just, I love the fact that you went and did this, and, and I, I, I hope that you would continue in the political sphere to keep pushing this, right? That people like you are needed in politics.
1: Well there are a lot of people like me out there, I'm sure many of them are your viewers, mm-hmm. and I, I encourage them to get involved as well, and to put their values into action. I think that's really important,
0: and that's really the take-home message. Really, just take your values, get involved locally, step up. What? Not you? Then why not? you, yeah, Then whom? Really? If not you, then whom? You got to do it. You got to step up and step into it. So I look forward to watching your career and supporting what you're doing. Um, and I thank you for sharing. It's, thank it's, you, Pedro. Great. great. Let me know what you think. I'll see you in the next show, Dr. Pedro Shojai, the Urban Monk i <laughs>